Amen. Have a seat if you would. Good evening once again. It's our, our final Sunday of Advent. As you can see over here, we have lit the, the fifth candle, fifth and final candle of Advent. And here we are enjoying an evening of worship together with, I hope, the anticipation of Christmas in the air. And that means this is a great time to declare joy to the world. Why? Because the Lord has indeed come. Amen? And joy to the Lord, it's true, the Savior reigns. Well, tonight I have an interesting task. Tonight I get to try to wrap up all that we have been working through and studying over the last four weeks. The story of God's promise to send Messiah to the earth. A story played out over 4,000 years of human history. You might recall in week number one, we talked about how it all started in the beginning, right? Way back in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall in the garden, when God promised to someday send a redeemer. One who would strike the head of the serpent and reverse the curse that had been brought upon all of us by our common ancestors, Adam and Eve. And then we looked at the messianic breadcrumbs that God sort of left along the path so that we could trace his hand in how he was going to bring this serpent striker into our world. Moses, David, and the prophets all described him, both suffering servant and victorious king, both eternal origins and yet a humble birthplace. And it caused all of us to stand back and say, well, how can those things all be true? Last Sunday, we watched as God began to really set the table for all of it to come into place in a particular time, in a particular age, moving not among the elite of Jewish society, not with King Herod, not with the religious authorities, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, but by appearing to ordinary faithful servants, people like Zacharias and Elizabeth and Mary. And last Sunday, we looked at six scenes in those lives. We looked at this ordinary priestly family, Zacharias and Elizabeth. We looked at Zacharias's service in the temple, in the holy place. We looked at Elizabeth's time of seclusion. And then we looked at the angelic appearance to Mary, this ordinary teenager. We looked at a family stay, Mary going to visit Elizabeth. And finally, we looked sort of humorously at this family feud as Zacharias and Elizabeth name John at his bris, at his time of circumcision. And as we complete the Christmas story tonight, I get to add two more scenes to this. So if you have your Bibles, grab them, and let's turn to everybody's favorite Christmas chapter, Luke chapter 2. We're just going to finish the story that we started last week. Scene number 7 of 8, I call this the journey. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, recall that Elizabeth at this point has given birth to John. We saw the circumcision and the naming last week. And recall that Mary has now returned home. She, has, she spent three months in the hill country with Elizabeth, and now she's gone back home up to Galilee. And as she arrives back in Nazareth, no doubt she was showing. Imagine Joseph's shock. In fact, imagine the entire town's shock. Joseph would have been forced at that moment to conclude that while she was away for these three months, that she must have had sexual relations with some man while she was in Judea. And so Joseph, who obviously cared deeply for Mary, determined that he was not going to make a public spectacle of her, but was going to discreetly send her away. And it's at this point, and we looked at this two weeks ago in the Gospel of Matthew, when the angel, presumably Gabriel, comes and appears to uh, Joseph and explains the whole situation. And Joseph, good man that he was, 
right? We don't know a whole lot about him from scripture, but seems to be a man with a good heart. And think about how overwhelmed he must have been to hear that he was going to have to parent the Messiah of Israel. Parents, you know exactly that type of pressure. That's sarcasm. He faithfully took Mary as his wife. Look at verse 1. Now in those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now last Sunday, we looked at how committed Luke was. In fact, he states at the very beginning of his gospel how committed he was to writing down an accurate, chronological, well-researched account of Jesus' life. And so here, at the very beginning of the story, notice how he takes great pains to ground the story in real history. He says, in those days. What in those days? Well, in those days, Caesar Augustus was ruling as emperor in Rome, the most powerful man in the world. And in those days, this man named Quirinius was governor in Syria. Now, why does that matter? Well, again, this is part of the historical record. We know that Quirinius was a man that moved amongst the highest ranks of Roman history throughout his life. We know that he led Roman legions in battle on several occasions. We know that he served a term as a Roman consul, which was the highest political office within the Roman Empire at the time, and that he's mentioned by two of the period's most important historians other than Luke, first of all by the Roman historian Tacitus and also by the Jewish historian Josephus. So he's a very real man and a very important man in Roman history. So Luke gives us this key historical data, things that we can work with, that this is a very real period of time, not some age in some imaginary or mythological period. Very important. Verse 3. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. So again, more historical data here. We see real places. We see the region of Galilee. We see the city of Nazareth. You can still visit these places Today, you can still put a shovel in the ground and see that they were real places. You can dig up this type of history and know that the Bible records truth. We see Bethlehem, the city of David. It's about 7,500 miles from here. It's a very real place. It's a very real town, not a fictional place. This is not Narnia. This is not Middle Earth. Okay, it's important to understand that this is not a galaxy far, far away. This is a real town six miles to the southwest of Jerusalem, a place that some of us in just about four and a half months are actually going to go and see for ourselves. And again, I emphasize the historical nature of the account for this reason, because the rest of the story is going to have all kinds of supernatural occurrences to it. And the skeptic within us wants to read this and go, well, I'm not sure I believe in angelic visitations. But notice Luke is saying, I'm a historian. I'm telling you these are historical facts. We looked at his language last week. He says, I want to give you lockdown truth. I want you to know that this is solid, it's stable, and it's unchanging, even the angelic visitations. We've got to take it all together. I want you to know, he says, that this story is rooted in historical facts, a combination, remember, of eyewitnesses and trusted sources. So believe. So we're told here in verses 3 to 5 that Joseph and a very pregnant Mary at this point, they complied with the Roman edict, okay? They're, they're submitting to the governmental authorities. 
They leave Nazareth in Galilee. They travel to Bethlehem in Judea. And I'll put the map back up so you can see how far this trip is. You see the yellow dot up there? That's where Nazareth is. The blue dot is what? Jerusalem. And the white dot is Bethlehem, just about, again, six miles to the southwest of Jerusalem. So that's not a short journey, is it? Nor an easy journey. Imagine, I know some of you ladies can, can really identify with this. Imagine being nine months pregnant and having to travel the distance of where we're sitting now to Disneyland on foot or on an animal. Nine months pregnant. Think about the, it's about 70 miles. Think about the distance there. Partly on foot, partly on donkey, about seven days of travel, exposed to the elements, no camping gear. Yeah. And as a reminder, not for a happy reason. This wasn't like, well, at least we're going for some really fun reason. They were obeying an oppressive government. They were going for the purpose of being taxed. So this is a yuck all around, isn't it? All right, now look at Luke's simple description of Jesus' birth in verse 6. While they were there, where are they? Bethlehem. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. Verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Folks, that's it. Two verses. Two verses. The birth narrative of the Lord. Now, a few things to notice here. You look at these first seven verses, and to the to the eye, it looks like this is just recorded for us in sort of secular fashion. There's really no, nothing supernatural taking place in these first seven verses. In fact, if you, were, if you didn't know the story and you step back for a second and you read these verses, you might think, well, this is just a tragic story of a couple of young people that they're pregnant, they're traveling this long distance, and they, they give birth in sort of the dirtiest, most miserable conditions you can imagine. Just, just a tragic story. And frankly, if somebody then said, well, this is actually the story of God's Messiah coming into the world, we might protest and say, well, that, that doesn't make any sense at all. That, that seems completely inappropriate. Of all people, how does a redeemer end up in an animal's feeding trough? How does the Messiah of Israel end up wearing just strips of cloth to keep him warm? It just seems out of place to us, doesn't it? It seems inappropriate for a king. See number eight. We call it fields of glory. Look at verse eight. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. Now, don't read past this detail. Think shepherds for a moment. Shepherds. How much biblical imagery is centered around the concepts of sheep and shepherds? It's absolutely everywhere in the Bible, from Genesis 4 to Revelation 7, you will see all kinds of stuff about shepherds and sheep. I did a quick word search for sheep in the Bible. 188 times we see sheep. I look for shepherds. 104 mentions of shepherds. Here's a short list of famous biblical shepherds. Abel, Abraham, Lot, Isaac, Jacob, and his 12 sons. Moses, David, Amos. There's a lot of shepherding going on in the Bible. And the parallels and the symbolism in this narrative are way too obvious to ignore. First of all, think about this, that shepherds would be the first to hear the good news of the arrival of the one who will forever be known as the good shepherd. And they're the first witnesses. Second, that the flocks in Bethlehem, again, only six miles away, the flocks in Bethlehem were known to be one of the primary sources 
of sacrificial lambs that would be taken up to Jerusalem to be slaughtered. The parallelism, parallels and the symbolism are obvious. So it seems wholly appropriate that God would send his messenger angel, not to Herod, not to the Pharisees or the Sadducees, but to these men, to simple shepherds. This was a category of men who in that age were despised and looked down upon everybody. All of polite society would not allow a shepherd in their door, smelly, dirty. These were, they were so bad that they weren't even allowed. They were barred from courtrooms, so they couldn't even give testimony in that culture of that day. And so to these simple downtrodden men, God announces in a blaze of glory the greatest news in the history of the world, the greatest news of all. Look at verse 10. The angel says to them, and haven't we seen this already twice? What do the angels always say first? Don't be afraid. They've got to be frightening, right? They've got to be incredibly intimidating. The angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Peace. And we talk a lot about peace at Christmas time, don't we? Peace is the one thing that mankind cannot seem to lay his hands upon. Have you noticed that? Whether it's peace in his relationships, peace with other cultures, peace with other nations, peace within himself, peace with his creator. But the coming of this child will indeed bring peace to those who seek it. To those, look at the end of it, those, the end of verse 14, to those with whom he has pleased, Luke writes, to those whom God will call, to those whom God will draw to himself, to those whom he will justify and save all through this particular child born on this particular night in this particular town. Isaiah writes, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So think about it. His glory, our peace, his mercy, our joy, his grace, our salvation. Verse 15. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry. They found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. Now, when I read this part of the story, I've always had a question about this part of the story. Sometimes I just have this, I have this weird mind where I read something and I go, well, wait, how did that happen? What happened here? The shepherds are filled with all this excitement about locating this child, and it says they found their way to the nativity scene. How? How exactly did they make it there? I know Bethlehem was not a big town. Scholars think somewhere between maybe 300, maybe 400 people tops. But even with those small numbers, how did the shepherds find Mary and Joseph and the baby in the middle of the night? They didn't know Mary or Joseph. Right? They'd, they'd never seen them. They didn't know how to recognize them. In fact, did anyone in Bethlehem that night know Mary and Joseph? It's a question. So how do you run into a town to find people you don't know and can't recognize? Anybody else ever thought of that question? Read through this? I, I know I'm weird. But how did they do it? Well, I think this is why the birth takes place in such a unique way. There needed to be something very unique about the nativity scene for the shepherds to locate. It's an identity thing. So look again at verse 12. The angel says, this will be a sign for you. That's a strange statement. So they said, this is a sign. Look for a particular baby in a very unusual situation. 
He's going to be in an animal's feeding trough. That's pretty hard to miss. So I'm convinced that the tragic features of the story, the ones that make us say, this looks so inappropriate for God's Messiah, those are the very features which help the shepherds locate the Christ child for the purpose of worshiping. The only question I have is, how many doors did they knock on that night <laughs> as they were going through the city, right? How many, how many people answered the door and said, what are you doing? Did some, did some people who answered the door, did they explain to them? Did they then follow the shepherds? Was it like an all-out search in Bethlehem? I picture maybe if you're looking at Bethlehem from the top of the hill, all these lights going on all over the place. Where is this couple and where is this child? Imagine then for a moment what the scene would have meant to the shepherds. They locate Mary and Joseph. They locate the baby. And these shepherds come and they bow down and they think to themselves, listen to this now. This is the king of Israel. This is God's Messiah. It was announced to us, shepherds, this child is born in, in poverty like us, born in such a lowly state like us, born unclean like we're considered unclean, lying among animals of the field. Imagine what they might have thought. Is it possible that Messiah has come to earth for men like us? Is it true that even shepherds will be welcome at God's table? It's a powerful scene. Before I wrap up this half of the sermon, I want to go ahead and invite the worship team to come up. Guys, come up and get settled because we're going to sing again in just a moment. And as they do that, try not to focus on them, but stay with me. Look at verse 17. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told to him about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told to them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. So imagine the scene, you're Mary or Joseph, the, the baby's in the manger, and all of a sudden these shepherds come up. And again, we don't know how many there were. We don't know if there were other townspeople that come up, but suddenly this, this crowd circles around. Now, remember, they had received their own angelic visitations, and they'd been clued in about who their son was, but still they're processing all of this information. To hear the shepherds tell this story, a multitude of angels appeared to us in the field. I know, we don't know how many a multitude is, but people have suggested thousands, thousands of angels appearing in the field. To hear that story, it must have been overwhelming. And I think this is why Luke records, Mary, Mary treasured these things, pondering them in her heart. What does that mean exactly? You can picture her, her mind and her heart. It's filled with a mixture of joy and amazement and fear and wonder. And so she's treasuring all of it, but she's also pondering, right? Picture it, you're processing all that's happened. What is, how much has Mary gone through in the last nine months of her life? I mean, seriously, think about this. She's just an average Galilean teenager one day, and the next thing you know, all of these things are happening. First of all, she's having a baby. She's still never been with a man, but she's having a baby. Angels are appearing all over the place. They're making announcements. Are you serious? My baby is going to be the son of God? I don't think we can possibly grasp where Mary's head was at this point, but clearly she's treasuring and she's pondering. Last verse here, verse 20. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as been, had been told to them. Now, so catch the irony here. I, I'm convinced that God's sense of humor, his sense of irony is so strong. Men who belong to this class of society who were banned from testimony in a human courtroom are now given the privilege of being the ones to bear witness to the birth of God's son. 
You're not good enough for the human courtroom, but you're good enough to announce the coming of God's Messiah. What a beautiful picture of God's grace. As we looked at last Sunday from from Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And he's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And if Jesus came to save the poor and the oppressed and the despised of this world, why not announce it to men who fit that description? Would you bow your heads? I just want you to meditate on that for a moment. And in just a second, the worship team is going to pick up and lead us.
take a moment and just contemplate what you've just heard as Jeff comes back up and continues to bring us the word. Behold your king. Behold Messiah. Amen, amen. Thank you. Thank you, Stacy. Turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. We're not done in the word. Galatians 4, go to verse 1. Now that we've examined the birth narrative in Luke 2, what I want to do to finish our Advent study well is to sort of peek behind the curtain. We've seen the, what's happening on the ground. Let's peek behind the curtain just a little bit. We'll do that here in Galatians 4. Let me just start with some context here in Galatians. As we come to chapter 4 of this important book, Paul has been drawing for the church a contrast between the Old Covenant and the New between living under the law of Moses and living by faith in Christ. And he describes life under the old covenant law like living under a temporary guardian, living in the custody of somebody who has oversight in your life. Consider a young man who is the heir to a massive estate, is worth billions of dollars, but he's not yet old enough to take possession of it. So what does he actually own? Nothing. Not yet. He will someday, but not yet. Until he comes of age, he's stuck living under this guardian, somebody who is helping him to live a life of discipline. This person tells him when to wake up, when to go to school, what to wear, how to behave, what time to go to bed. His life is not yet his own. He's more of a slave than he is a son. But in the end, it's all for his own good because he needs that discipline for what's to come in the future. Why? Because there's coming a day, a day established by his father, when everything will change and this young man will receive his full inheritance. With that backdrop, let's read these important verses. Galatians 4, 1 to 5. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were, his, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So did you catch the analogy there? Prior to the advent of Christ under the old covenant law, God's people were living under the discipline of a temporary guardian. They were owners of a great inheritance, but they weren't ready to receive it yet, so they were stuck, so to speak, in elementary school until a time when they would grow up. But that changed one day, for the Father had established a specific time to change everything. In the fullness of the time, Paul writes, when he would act to make his people full-blown sons and daughters with all of the privileges that come with being heirs, to being heirs. What did the father do? He sent forth his own son into the world. He sent his son to Bethlehem. He sent his son to Mary and Joseph. He sent his son to the shepherds, to the magi, to you and to me and to all who would trust in him and receive him by faith alone. That's what happened. That's what makes the difference. Amen? So I want to look at three important aspects of the the language that Paul gives us here. Here's the first one. The first one speaks to origin. God sent forth his son. So now we peel peel back the curtain. We get to look behind and we see, well, this is how Bethlehem happened. God sent forth his son. This is the origin of the Messiah. We've been looking at all this Old Testament 
prophecy leading up to this. The serpent striker is coming. Well, when and where did he come from? He wasn't created. He wasn't just born. He was sent forth by the Father. Very important language. He came from a place outside of our physical world, meaning, of course, that he existed prior to that glorious night in Bethlehem. Now, which of you out there tonight, which of you existed before the day you were born? Anybody here have a pre-existence? No, none of us, right? When Tanya and I had our first child, we didn't send out an announcement that said, we're excited to announce that God has sent forth Chandler into the world because she had no pre-existence. Make sense? There was a time when Chandler was not. But then, by God's grace and the miracle of procreation, she was. She came into existence, and she was born. By the way, 27 years ago tonight, December 22nd. She's not here, but happy birthday, Chan. But by phrasing it in this way, sent forth, Paul is testifying to the eternal and divine nature of that little baby in the manger. His sonship is eternal. He is the one and only Son of the Father, the second person of the Trinity, who existed with the Father in glory from eternity past. The Apostle John agrees with that. He writes, in the beginning, that is before creation, in the beginning was the Word, that's the Son, and the Word was with God and the Word was God, meaning he possesses the full attributes of a divine person just as his Father does. And then in case you missed it, in verse 2, he begins, he says it again. John says, he was in the beginning with God. So friends, when we come to the Christmas story, it's so easy to pass over this. When we examine this cute little baby in the manger, this is who we're talking about. The eternal divine word sent forth by the Father in the fullness of the times. God picked out a day. Imagine this. In all of human history, picked out a day for this amazing, glorious thing to happen. And he sent forth his son. That's his origin. Second implication is this, the manner in which he was born. Born of a woman, it says. Born under the law. Think of this for a second. An eternal being steps into time and space. The divine one outside of the universe, outside of time and space, steps into it and becomes a part of his own creation. I I like to say it this way. God the Son became historical. Sent forth from heaven, then born into this world, this, this blows my mind. Through a very real and very human developmental process in the womb of a Galilean teenager. How humbling is that? In theological terms, we say Jesus condescended to be born of a woman. Condescended. The dictionary says this. To voluntarily put aside one's dignity or superiority and assume equality with one who is regarded as inferior. That's what Jesus did. The eternal Son of God, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-sovereign, he voluntarily stepped way, 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 way down. He stooped as low as a divine being can go in order to identify with you and with me. I've always loved this quote from Martin Luther. He says, Christianity does not begin at the top as every other religion does. It begins at the bottom. What a gracious, sacrificial, humble Savior we worship. Let me cite again from the first chapter of John's gospel, verse 14, a well-known verse. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Folks, that phrase, became flesh, is loaded with theological truth. It's interesting. John didn't write the word became a man, nor did he write the word became a human being. 
And the danger that we could fall into would be thinking that the Son of God just somehow filled the human body. And some of the earliest church fathers fell into this trap that Jesus sort of snatched the identity and the body of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. But that's not what John's describing. By using the term became flesh, John is saying that the Son of God took on everything that is inherent to a human nature. Every single bit of it, body, soul, will, and emotions. Jesus didn't just pretend to be a human. He wasn't playing at the concept. He actually became flesh. It's hardly fathomable when you think through all the implications of what that means. And we don't like talking about it because it's funny, as Christians, it's almost like we prefer to just look at him as deity and we don't want to think of him as human, but don't fall into that trap. Fully human, that means God the Son was kicking in his mother's womb. God the Son given eyebrows and elbows and two kidneys and a spleen. God the Son with wrinkled skin, crying for food, needing his diaper changed. God the Son learning to crawl, spilling his milk, bumping his head. God the Son obedient to fallible parents, educated like a typical Jewish boy. God the Son with pimples, with bad breath. God the Son with his voice changing, with his beard finally beginning to grow. God the Son with, yeah, young girls crushing on him. This one will break Grant's heart. God the Son may be singing off tune. God the Son hungry and thirsty and tired and sick and sad and righteously angry and hurt and exhausted and in agony. God the Son dying. Some think it's too irreverent to talk like that, to talk about Jesus being that much of a human, but it had to be so. As Hebrews 2.17 says, he had to be made like us in every way so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so the invisible becomes visible. And the untouchable becomes touchable. And the unbreakable becomes fragile. And the exalted becomes humbled. And the famous is turned into obscurity. And the glorious is subjected to shame. All those things are true. As we've been singing every Sunday during Advent, he is the infinite, infant God. Have you been listening to the lyrics of that song? The artisan inside the paint. The architect inside the plan. Think about it this way. The playwright who's writing the story puts down the pen and steps onto the stage and becomes the main character of the story. That's what Jesus did. It really is the greatest story that anybody could tell. Think of the juxtaposition of these things. The Word was, and He became. The Word was with God, but He dwelt with us. The Word was God, He became flesh. He's the God-man. Two distinct natures, one divine, one human, united in one person. Remember, when the Word became flesh, He didn't cease to be the Word. The baby Jesus who was wrapped in those cloths and lying in that manger, the one who needed a diaper change, was still the all-powerful, omnipresent Lord of the universe. This is hard to wrap your mind around, isn't it? How can that be, you ask? Well, God cannot be and never is limited by time and space. Just as he appeared to Moses in the burning bush, 
We say that God had a concentrated presence in that bush, but certainly he was still everywhere else, wasn't he? So yeah, God the Son was concentrated for 30 plus years in the man Jesus, but he always retained his divine attributes. He always remained omnipresent and the sustainer of all things. What a wonder this is, right? And so what we see in the God-man is a miraculous extension, not a reduction. Not a loss of his divine nature, but the adding on of a second nature. Becoming flesh and taking on a second nature, a human nature. How hard is that to comprehend? It's hard because it's without precedent. Without, there's nothing you can compare Jesus to. And that's by design. I believe it's designed to basically obliterate every category of what we know and to cause us to basically just cover our mouths and gasp in in awe and wonder at the glory and the beauty and the majesty of the God-man. That's really what Christmas is about, when you think about it, that we would step back and just cover our mouths and go, mind blown, that God would do this and all of this for us, that he would condescend for you and for me. Here's the third thing to see about the incarnation. The purpose of his coming. It says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of the law. Here's the purpose statement. Verse 5, so that, purpose statement, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. First, think about that for a second. Jesus is born under the law. What does that mean? That means that although he is the creator and he's the sovereign of the whole universe, within time and space, he humbly submits to the Mosaic Covenant with all of its obligations. He places himself under contract to obey God's law perfectly, and because he lives a life in the flesh, free of sin, he alone qualifies to redeem those under the law. And so Jesus came to redeem a particular people for himself. And to do something you see there at the end of verse 5, to restore to us a lost inheritance, an inheritance that we lost when? Back in the garden, at the fall. But now because God sent forth his son, because he lived this holy life under God's law, you and I, by faith alone in him, can receive this adoption as sons and daughters of God and be co-heirs with him for all eternity. That's what he did in the incarnation. Here's a Christmas analogy that might help to explain this. How many of you guys have ever gone out to one of those living Christmas tree lots and you've, you've cut down a tree? Raise your hand. Nobody does that anymore. Okay, good. Oh, everybody's got a fake tree out there? Wow. We, they need help. Okay, if you've ever done this, you go out to a living Christmas, you take your axe or you take your saw, right, and you cut down a tree and then you strap it to the car and you get it home. You got that tree sap all over your hands, you know what I mean? And you cut off the edge and you, you sort of wrestle it into your tree stand. It's always too big for the stand right? Got to sort of shave it down and all that. You squeeze it into that tree stand, and after hours of agony, if you have little kids, you know this. You're sweating. It's, it's awful. And you stand back, and you go, well, that looks nice, but here's the bad news. All you really did was prolong the inevitable death of your tree. There's only one way that tree will ever live on, and that's if it's replanted. It has to be re- reunited with the good soil that you took it out of, when you cut it down, if it's going to survive Christmas. Well, because of sin, you and I are like that tree. We're alive for a time, but the end for all of us is coming. Eventually, we'll dry up and die. 
But for life to go on, we have to be replanted in the good soil of the gospel. In biblical language, we have to be grafted into the living vine of Jesus Christ if we're going to survive. That's the Christmas message, that God sent forth the Son into the world so that you and I might not die but have eternal life through the vine, who is God the Son. So two simple phrases in this Galatians passage sum up the whole mystery of the incarnation, sum up the beauty of Christmas, sent forth, true God, eternal, almighty, omnipresent, all-powerful, and born of a woman. True man in time and space becoming flesh. Why does it matter? To represent you and I in both life and death, he has to be fully God and fully human. There's no other way. He's got to be fully human if he's going to represent us on the cross, and he's got to be fully God if he's going to pay the ransom for our sin. Friends, there is no other way. There is no other way. One last thought before we go our separate ways to celebrate Christmas. Remember that it's only Luke who, require, who relates to us the details of the Messiah's birth that night in Bethlehem. That's it. One out of four. 25% of the gospel writers give us the details about the birth narrative. And even with Luke, how many verses? Two. What does that tell us? Is it a coincidence? Is that by chance? Or is there a priority here? Think about the, the, uh, the idea of proportion. When a writer decides to write something, he gives the most time and space to what's most important. So I'm not trying to diminish the glory of the Christmas story here because there's so much we can learn, so much that we see about God and his heart for us. But in the end, not one of us is justified by the manger. Let me say that again. No one in this room is justified by the manger. Yes, Christ had to be born. He had to become flesh. He had to live a, a perfect life to represent us. That's definitely part of essential Christology. But it is his atoning work on the cross that pays, that, that, that is the foundation for our justification. Ultimately, our salvation and adoption as sons and daughters become, comes to us because of the cross, not because of the manger. So why then do most people prefer Christmas to Easter? I fear it's because the, ma the manger is far less threatening than the cross. Jesus, the baby, is sweet and cuddly. Makes for great cards. He's controllable as a baby. Folks have no problem worshiping the cute little baby. But Jesus hanging on the cross is much different, isn't it? It's bloody and it's messy. And folks want to avert their eyes. And folks don't want to talk about a sovereign, holy God who demands payment for sin. No thank you. Give me the baby in the manger. They don't want to talk about a God who deserves our obedience and our submission and our worship. And so, friends, tonight I would say this. Adoring the baby in the manger is great, but it's not enough. Every time you see the manger, make sure you also see the cross. That's why even on our stage here, we have a manger, but we have this red fabric coming out of it. When you see the manger, see also the cross. When you think of Jesus' tiny hands and tiny feet, remember, they were nailed to a Roman cross as a man. One person, one God-man, one Messiah, one Redeemer, one serpent striker, one suffering servant, one eternal king. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. 
And once again, John the Apostle agrees. John says, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to every man, was coming into the world, and to all who received him, to all believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so tonight we celebrate and we honor and we worship the light of God's Messiah and God's Son. And we're going to do that in just a moment by lighting candles that are going to spread all over this room and hopefully spread from this room out into our community as we share the good news of Christmas. The manger, yes, but the cross as well. Will you pray with me?